Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is cereal. So let's dive right in with fact number one. Cornflakes were invented to prevent masturbation. Now, it's probably never occurred to you as you were crunching on your morning cornflakes to think about their inventor, John Harvey Kellogg. Now, old John Kellogg was not only a well-established medical doctor, he was also a total weirdo. Kellogg grew up in a seriously devout Christian family from Battle Creek, Michigan, who were members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, to give you a little bit of perspective on how hardcore these guys were, they made Mormons look positively secular. It was actually the founders of the church, Ellen and James White, who funded Mr. Kellogg's medical studies at the Bellevue Medical College in New York after spotting that he had potential. Because of his strict and devout upbringing, he was a complete believer in the church's stance that masturbation was destructive to the spirit. He also thought plain old sex was bad for a person's physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And he avoided it his entire life. Call me a cynic, but if sex really is bad for you, then God probably wouldn't have made it the only way to carry on our species. He never consummated his marriage to Mrs. Kellogg, and they even slept in separate bedrooms. You could say there was no snap, crackle and pop in their relationship. It's rumoured that during his honeymoon, he spent most of the time writing an anti-sex book. And they say romance is dead. Naturally, they adopted all their children, and as dirty and immoral as sex supposedly was, masturbation was considered much, much worse. He once wrote, If illicit commerce of the sexes is a heinous sin, then self-pollution is a crime doubly abominable. He also went to the effort of outlining 39 different symptoms which could apparently manifest if one spends too long bashing the bishop, including mood swings, fickleness, bashfulness, stiff joints, bad posture, acne, palpitations, epilepsy, and perhaps most horrifying of all, a fondness for spicy food. Which, now I come to think of it, 
That explains why every weekend all across the UK, Indian restaurants are frequented by absolute wankers. Anyway, in a book he wrote in 1887, he spent an entire section talking about masturbation, calling it self-pollution, a solitary vice, and the most dangerous of all sexual abuses. Now, calling it a solitary vice seems pretty damn obvious to me. It's kind of in the definition. It's like calling football a game which requires feet. Mind you, Kellogg wasn't the only Victorian writing about the dangers of spanking the monkey. The Victorians published all sorts of books with fantastic titles such as Anonia or The Heinous Sin of Self-Pollution and All Its Frightful Consequences, which isn't quite as catchy as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, but it sold quite well nonetheless. Like any sane person would, Kellogg decided that bad diets were at the root of all of this one-handed debauchery. To be fair, don't we all feel a little bit like abusing ourselves after a McDonald's? Would you like fries with that? He was obsessed with diet and believed in only eating plain and bland foods twice a day. Certain foods, according to Kellogg, increased sexual desire. Meat, for instance, or anything particularly seasoned or flavorful. As such, he also believed the reverse was true, that blander foods such as cereal and nuts could curb sexual desire. To be fair, when was the last time you saw almonds on the buffet table at an orgy? He also developed an enema machine on the basis that a clean bowel was next to a godly bowel. Jesus Christ's back passage must have been immaculate. Weirdly, he felt it was best if the water which he passed through his bowel was followed by a pint of yoghurt. And he tried it on several patients. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The bloke who invented your morning bowl of cereal was a celibate psychopath who spent his days inventing new ways to pump yoghurt into people's assholes. And yoghurt enemas were one of the mildest of his so-called treatments. Some of his other treatments for masturbation would have you covering your crotch and yelling, no, it's fine, I'll just eat the damn cornflakes. For instance, to curb sexual desire in boys, Kellogg suggested threading silver wire through the foreskin, ah! as it was somehow meant to prevent erections. When it came to girls, however, his ideas were frankly barbaric. Kellogg thought it would be a great idea to apply carbolic acid to the clitoris, as it would burn like holy hell and discourage any kind of hand-in-underpants action. And so, Kellogg decided that a grain-based health food was needed, which was not only easy on the digestion, but also kept people's grubby hands off their privates. His first creation was a so-called health treat consisting of baked oatmeal and cornmeal. It was called granola. After this, he started creating cereals with flaked grains, one of which was the legendary cornflake which he felt would be 
the perfect anti-masturbatory breakfast dish. In 1894, whilst boiling wheat to try to make dough, he messed the whole thing up and accidentally found himself with some flat, wide flakes. He decided to bake the flakes and a legend was born. Although, kind of ironically, baking the flakes does sound a bit like a euphemism for masturbation. John took his new invention to his brother, Will Kellogg, who suggested they set up a new business. But Will didn't really share his brother's interest in keeping people pure via their diets, but he was a keen businessman. So he decided if they were going to sell it, then there needed to be some changes. The whole eat these and you'll never wank again marketing campaign, for instance. So instead, cornflakes were advertised as nutritious and helpful. Will not only avoided using the anti-masturbation aspect as a marketing tool, but also suggested they add sugar to make their flakes a bit tastier. And less like chewing cardboard soaked in milk. John, however, was not on board with this. He believed that sugar would only increase bad behaviour and encourage wandering hands. This resulted in a lifelong feud between the brothers, which was never really settled. I'm not quite sure who got custody of Tony the Tiger. Will eventually started to see John as a tyrant. The brothers had a big falling out, and Will eventually left to found the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company, later to become the Kellogg's Cereal Company, where he could add all the sugar and salt his heart desired. Will ended up shipping 175,000 cases of cornflakes in the company's first year. And what's more, he was quite happy for people to enjoy a fondle as they were slurping them down. Within just a few years, Kellogg's cornflakes were a household name and could be found in nearly every kitchen in the United States. Next up, moments from history. Where we look back at one particularly bizarre moment from the past. This week we cover the time when a hundred impostors once claimed to be Marie Antoinette's son. Marie Antoinette was the last Queen of France before the French Revolution, when the whole of France rose up and got a bit head choppy all of a sudden. On the 10th of May, 1774, Louis Auguste ascended to the throne, becoming Louis XVI, and Marie Antoinette became queen. After eight years of marriage, she started having children, which improved her position at court, but she wasn't a popular queen. She was accused of being profligate, promiscuous, and sympathetic to the enemies of France. And it was also suggested that her children were illegitimate. During the revolution, the country's financial crisis was blamed on her lavish spending, and she became known as Madame Deficit. But then the revolution happened. In October 1789, the royal family were put under house arrest in Tuileries Palace. On the 21st of September 1792, the monarchy was finally abolished, 
and Louis the Sixteenth was executed by guillotine on the twenty-first of January, seventeen ninety-three. Marie Antoinette's trial began on the fourteenth of October, seventeen ninety-three. But let's be honest, it was never going to end well for her, was it? A trial was about as necessary as a condom on a panda. She was convicted of high treason two days later by the Revolutionary Tribunal of High Treason and executed by guillotine on the Place de la Révolution. Louis and Marie's son and heir to the throne, Louis the Seventeenth, was also taken to prison, which was a bit of a come down from the gold-trimmed rooms of Versailles. Now an orphan and only eight, he was held alone in a prison cell in the Paris Temple, where he was horribly abused and neglected. His captors weren't too keen on this young royal. It wasn't particularly a time in France's history when royalty was popular, let's just say that. They called him the Wolf Cub, the son of a tyrant, and quite simply, the Bastard. Ah yes, the good old bastard. A favourite insult of history books if ever there was one. By 1795, he was barely recognisable. His belly was distended from malnourishment, and he was covered in open sores. When a respected doctor, Philippe Jean Peloton, was called in, he was horrified by his condition. Unfortunately, all assistance was too late, the doctor later recalled. No hope was to be entertained. And so, on the 8th of June, 1795, Louis Charles died of tuberculosis <coughs> in the arms of one of his jailers. He was only 10 years old. An autopsy was performed by Peloton, during which he found evidence of the wicked abuse of his jailers. During the autopsy, Peloton also nicked Louis's heart, as you do, and just slipped it into his pocket. He was determined to return it to the exiled members of his surviving family. Poppy really ruined his coat, though. Heart goo is an absolute bugger to get out. Following this, he was secretly buried in a mass grave at a nearby cemetery. And this is where things started to get weird. His sister, Mary Therese, who'd been unaware of his death in her cell just above him, was released in December 1795. She was haunted by the mystery of what happened to him until her death over 50 years later. Over the years, a slew of 100 men claiming to be Louis would come forward and pester Mary Therese, claiming to be the real Dauphin. It was like the 18th century version of Will the Real Slim Shady Please Stand Up? But with a lot more wigs. You see, a successful claimant could theoretically find himself on the throne of France. But was it really worth it, considering what had just happened to the previous now-headless monarch? Anyway, Rich's fame and adulation came to many impostors, thus encouraging others to come forward. You could basically get fame and prestige for doing absolutely nothing. It was basically like 18th century X Factor. But surely Marie Therese would have recognised her brother. The, well, the problem was that nobody who'd known Louis Charles as a child had seen him after he went to prison, and people tend to look quite different as an adult. 
meaning literally anyone could make the claim. Fat men, thin men, tall men, small men, Mr. Men, anyone. And then an Austrian diplomat, Baron von Fugert, really helped matters when he said, there is no real and legal certainty that the son of Louis XVI is dead. The first claimant showed up only three years after his death, when a runaway tailor's son named Jean-Marie Hevergolt was found wandering the countryside. He refused to give his name and was put in local prison, but claimed that he was a member of a non-existent ducal house. He also said that a brand on his leg of the shield and lilies of France had been made by the Pope. I always had a suspicion the Pope was into some kinky stuff, but branding, hmm. As such, he was treated like a king in prison. His cell was like a little palace. He had his own small court and was constantly given gifts by the locals who were convinced he was Louis Charles. Even when his true identity was revealed, the tailor's son refused to give up on the fantasy, as did his fans and courtiers. He was still claiming to be the rightful King of France right up until the end when he died in 1812. Things really started to get out of hand in 1814 after the fall of Napoleon, when Louis Charles' uncle, Louis XVIII, reclaimed the throne known as the Bourbon Restoration. And all of a sudden, there were more heirs than on your average Ed. There were so many men coming forward claiming to be the dead heir that bodyguards at the royal palace had to become adept at turning them away. Following this, the dead prince craze went international. Fake pretenders were popping up in England, Denmark, Colombia, the Seychelles, even the USA, where they probably turned it into a reality TV show. The most famous American claimant was Eliza William, a Native American who only agreed to abdicate his fictitious right to the throne after being paid off by a French nobleman. And then there was some guy from New Orleans called Charles de Navarre, a man with a bunch of scars and loads of missing teeth, who travelled to France to claim he was the lost prince, even going as far as to declare it in court, despite the fact that he obviously looked more like a professional cage fighter. He even wrote a bunch of letters to the king pleading his case. Sadly for Charles, fraudulently claiming to be the king of France was illegal in France, so if you were going to indulge in a bit of total fakery, it was probably best not to let the king himself know about it. As such, he was arrested in 1817 and died in jail five years later. Now, whilst you absorb all that, we'll take a quick break, after which we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Snap, crackle and pop are deliberately making eye contact with your children. 
Now calm down, it's slightly less creepy than it sounds. Only slightly. You see, there's a study from Cornell University titled Eyes in the Isles. Why is Cap'n Crunch looking down at my child? Which claims that cereal mascots are designed so their eyes tilt downwards to try and influence a kid's choice. It suggests that kids in supermarket cereal aisles respond more positively to eye contact with the cartoon characters on the box, inevitably leading to, Mom, 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 I want this one. The idea was to look at the height of the placement on the shelf in relation to the eye height of the average adult shoppers and the average kid's eye height, and then calculate the angle of the character's gaze to see if they're purposely looking down at the children and not up at the adults. The researchers studied 65 cereal brands associated with popular cartoon spokes characters in 10 supermarkets across Connecticut and New York. They found that cereals marketed to kids are placed half as high on supermarket shelves as adult cereals. The average height for children's cereal boxes is 23 inches, as opposed to adult cereals which are standing at around 48 inches. The average angle of the gaze of cereal spokes characters on cereal boxes marketed to kids is downwards at a 9.6 degree angle. Whereas characters on adult cereal boxes, such as professional athletes, typically look straight ahead. Researchers say that eye contact increases feelings of trust and connection to the brand, which may lead to the kid in question choosing their brand over the competitors. Which is why I always crawl on my hands and knees down the cereal aisle just to see what grabs me. To any adult, of course, the mascot just appears to be looking down at his bowl of cereal, but from a child's vantage point, he's probably making direct eye contact. To prove this theory, researchers repositioned a rabbit mascot's gaze using Photoshop from the Trick cereal box and asked 65 undergraduates how they felt about making direct eye contact with this particular cartoon rabbit. I would answer creeps the hell out, but no, they were only given free statements, and asked how strongly they agreed with each one. I trust this brand, I feel connected to this brand, and this box is attention-getting. It turned out they preferred the photoshopped bunny making direct eye contact with them, compared to the original who appeared to be gazing downwards, by a margin of 16%. And so concluded that eye contact increases feelings of trust and connection to a brand. Except when they realised the Trix bunny is actually just eyeballing their wallets. The study further suggests that if you want your kid to avoid cereals full of sugar and e-numbers, it's probably best not to take them down that particular aisle of the supermarket, so they don't get visually propositioned by every creepy cartoon in the industry. Some cereal companies, however, have called the research absurd, although clearly not as absurd as using a leprechaun to sell marshmallows to kids for breakfast. General Mills, for example, published a rebuttal, rubbishing the Cornell publication and their findings, claiming that children come in all shapes and sizes, 
and that three out of four children walk at around 13 months, so approximating their average eye line is near impossible. General Mills also pointed out that the Trix rabbit looks in pretty much every direction depending on the box, up, left, right, straight ahead. He even has his eyes closed on a couple. Personally, I'd go for those box designs because the last thing I want when I come down for a midnight snack is to open my cupboard and see a murderous rabbit eyeballing me at 2am. Fact number three. Some cereals are magnetic because of the iron they contain. We all know iron is important, right? In school, we're taught it's one of the stars of the periodic table and is a nutrient which makes us strong. Iron is a vital component of hemoglobin, which is a substance in red blood cells that makes it red and carries oxygen. It's also a great name for a supervillain. I don't think one exists, but there should be. If you don't get enough iron through your diet, it can cause all sorts of problems, including tiredness, a shortness of breath, and heart palpitations. Which sounds a lot like me watching 2020 pass by. According to food scientists, adult men need roughly 9 milligrams of iron per day, and women need 15 milligrams. And that's why breakfast cereals have been fortified with iron since the 1940s, at least in the US. To this day, they're still one of the primary ways most children are able to meet their daily iron requirement. Iron is added to cereal in the form of a powder, which is basically very fine iron filings. Luckily, we can't see them because iron filings floating in milk isn't appetizing. Fortification is pretty much essential because without it, our cereals aren't nutritious at all. The production process of most Flaked cereals, and I won't go any further than that, for example, destroys most of the fiber and nutrients present in the original natural product, not to mention all the added salt, sugar, and other mumbo jumbo crap. So you might as well just eat the box they come in. So do you fancy finding out what the iron in your cereal looks like? Why not try this simple experiment? That's right, folks. This podcast just turned into a science lesson. Yay. Firstly, get a seriously strong magnet. A rare earth magnet is probably best. They're extremely strong and usually made from neodymium, which sounds cool as hell. Step one, pour a little water onto a small dish and float a few large flakes of your favorite breakfast cereal on the surface. Hold the magnet close to one of them and see if it moves towards the magnet. If it doesn't, then I don't know, just feel free to throw the dish at your nearest wall in some kind of anti-scientific rage. And if they are moving, well, brilliant. That means there's iron in your cereal. And if you've got nothing better to do for the rest of the day, you can just spend a while pulling the flakes around the water, spin them around or link them together in a nice little magnetic chain. Perhaps you could even start your own synchronized cereal team. Step two, get yourself one of those plastic Ziploc bags, put one cup of cereal in there, fill it halfway with warm water and seal it. It also makes for a tasty snack if you get bored of the experiment. 
Step three, give the bag a good shake until the warm water starts to dissolve the flakes and you find yourself holding a bag of disgusting brown sludge, hopefully for the first time in your life. Then allow this mixture to sit for 20 minutes. It should look like one of those goldfish you win at the fair if the goldfish has died and then popped into a blender. Anyway, step four. Place the magnet in the palm of your hand, lay the bag flat on top of it, and slosh the sludge around for around 15 or 20 seconds in order to attract any free-moving bits of metallic iron to the magnet. That is, if you can resist eating this delicious concoction for two minutes, of course. Okay, step five. Now flip the whole thing over so the magnet is on the top. Squeeze the bag so the magnet raises up a bit, and you should be able to see tiny black specks around the edges. That's my friend is the iron in your cereal. At least I hope it is, otherwise someone has been putting something seriously weird into your cereal. Step six, if you fancy it, start moving the magnet in little circles and you'll see the iron gathering into a big old clump of gray black stuff. At which point you can make a book or two by taking it down to your nearest scrap dealer. So, if you're not getting enough iron from your diet, then maybe gorge on some cornflakes every now and then. Or you could just swallow a piece of cutlery every morning. I don't recommend that one. Cereals such as Rice Krispies, cornflakes, granola, Special K, muesli, bran flakes, and a whole bunch of others all have high iron content. Not to mention my personal favorite, Iron Krispies. But even the most nutritious breakfast cereal isn't going to meet your daily iron requirement. No, for the last time, you can't live off cornflakes. You need a varied and balanced diet. You also need to be aware of things which can temporarily stop your body from absorbing iron. Tea and coffee, for instance. So, yes, they will wake you up, but there's also a chance they will reduce your life expectancy. Just like an earthquake. Milk also has an inhibitory effect on how much of the nutrients the body can take in. So in the end, it probably is best to just chew on a handful of iron filings every morning. Thanks for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of Random Interesting Facts. If you have, then please rate and review it. And if you have a random interesting fact that you're just dying to share with me, then you can tweet it at me using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's hashtag R-I-F podcast. Each week, I'll take my favourite fan-submitted fact and shout it out at the end of that episode. Thank you.